The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you doing tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you? Doing well, Father. Thanks for being here. Father, I wanted to start really quickly with a very, very nice email that uh, we received from one of our faithful, faithful viewers. Uh, She writes in and says that, your shows are all very good, interesting, and thought-provoking. You are doing a great job keeping up with all the little details you need to do each day and week, from the daily masses and saint of the day, and also updating the bulletin from Immaculate Conception Church. These things may seem to be trifles and insignificant details, but that's what really shows that you truly care. Thanks for all of your work. Great job. <coughs> very, very nice. Uh, that's you, though. That's, <laughs> well, that is... Uh... Congratulations to you. That's how I see it. <laughs> thank you, Father. Couldn't do it like, without you. I thank the viewer for that. <laughs> Definitely. All right. Well, Father, I'd like to get into a few emails. This first one uh, is from a viewer who says, A friend of mine from CMRI was refused Holy Communion in a Society of St. Pius V chapel. He was scandalized to the point that he now does not want to have anything to do with any traditional Catholic society and joined instead a conservative Novus Ordo parish. So the question is, what is the Society of St. Pius V policy on giving Holy Communion to Catholics who come from Novus Ordo or non-SSPX background? Uh, also, if the Society places any restrictions, have there been any steps taken to ease or lift them to facilitate sacramental life of traditional Catholics? Well, the sacramental policy of the Society of St. Pius V is that we will administer the sacraments, notably administer Holy Communion, to those who are living the traditional Catholic life and uh, not involved, that means, of course, not involved with things that are completely contrary to Catholic tradition. The CMRI, uh, on two counts, actually, because of their foundation uh, by Francis Schuchart, uh, originally, um, who actually claimed to be a, a, he was an anti-pope, you know, Hadrian the Seventh, I think he called himself. Um, that 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 excludes that organization. It was it was founded in schism, but also um, the fact that that they've turned to the Took bishops for orders uh, is another another count that is just totally against tradition. You, the Catholic Church um, forbids. A, a Catholic bishop from consecrating a non-Catholic. It sounds ridiculous to even have to point that out, you know, but, um, and uh, in fact, it's an automatic excommunication since uh, 1951. It's a, a, a immediate automatic excommunication in the most severe way possible, most specially reserved to the Holy See, for the Holy See, for a Catholic bishop to consecrate someone, well, notably, without the mandate from the Holy See, but Pope Pius Twelfth, under whom that that canon actually, because it became it was 
became part of canon law. Uh, Pius XII explained later, in an encyclical actually, how to understand that, that excommunication. He said, if one is um, consecrated contra omne fas, in the Latin, meaning against all Catholic practice. Now, we know in the past that there were Catholic bishops consecrated without the approval of the Holy See, and in fact the Church did approve of that subsequently when there was some real need or crisis in the church. In fact, for the first 600 years or so, that was the rule. That was what was stated in the uh, Council of Nicaea in 325, to lay, that laid down that if a bishop were to die, and if the bishops of the province would get together and choose a new bishop, consecrate him, and he would then even assume the command of a, you know, whatever position he had of authority in the church. Then they and they would notify the Holy See subsequent to, to what they've done. So um, the Pope Pius XII again um, issued the the automatic excommunication for someone who would consecrate a bishop contra omne fas. Clearly, to consecrate a man who is not a Catholic is contrary to all Catholic practice and all Catholic tradition. And unfortunately, this is what Archbishop Took did. And so it is that um, if, the, if the law of the church means anything, it certainly applies to the consecration of someone such as Jean Labarie, uh, Datesson, uh, and a number of others who were actually involved in, some of them even involved in a cult. So... Um, Again, if someone is going to the CMRI to receive the sacraments and they can do so uh, with peace of conscience, you know, then uh, they, they, in their own minds, are taken care of, I guess, sacramentally, but they cannot come to receive the sacraments from any priest of the Society of St. Pius V because we do not recognize that as a Catholic institution. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Certainly not as a, as a traditional Catholic institution. So what can be done to reconcile the differences between the Society of St. Pius V and the CMRI? Nothing can be done to reconcile. You can't reconcile differences like that, right? You have to just recognize that something is, again, contra omnifos, as Pope Pius XII said. It's something that is totally contrary to all Catholic tradition, and you have to abandon it to give it up. Our whole point is to be traditional Catholics. We're not going to be making some kind of peace or reconciling with what is contrary to all Catholic tradition. And um, therefore, we cannot be in communion with the CMRI or those who want to be part of that and receive the sacraments from them. Um, the same with the Novus Ordo. We see the, the Novus Ordo as the religion, the practice of modernism. Modernism is not Catholicism. Well, Pius X, St. Pius X made it very clear. Modernism is the antithesis of Catholicism. It redefines faith to be absolutely exclusive of the, of the very concept of faith, which is central to our Catholic religion, to our Catholic belief. So uh, it even falsifies the very concept of faith and starts from there to dismantle everything, all traditional Catholicism. And so uh, we are not in communion with the Novus Ordo. 
And so if someone comes to us from the CMRI and wants to receive the sacraments, someone comes to us from the Novus Ordo and wants to receive the sacraments, we have to tell her we cannot do so. We cannot be in communion with you. <clears throat> because you are in communion with, with uh, things, with the enemies of the faith. And uh, you, are, you are actually in communion with, uh, in this case, religious institutions and their practices which are anti-Catholic. Father, there, there's one argument that I've that I've heard uh, rather frequently, actually, in regards to to what you're saying here, uh, and that is that uh, the points you're making they're, they're they seem rather stubborn and close-minded in saying that the Society of Saint Pius V is essentially the only real traditional Catholic society out there. You're, you're discounting the, the CMRI, and if you were to get a CMRI faithful, uh, just a layperson and a Society of St. Pius V layperson, they would share essentially the, the same faith. And what the Society of St. Pius V is, is doing is kind of, uh, you know, they're looking at some very distant consecrations of, of some bishops that took place years and years ago and somehow applying that uh, to this, this poor layperson from the CMRI and you are discounting them, uh, barring them, banning them from any of the sacraments when they share essentially what is the same faith as a regular layperson from the Society of St. Pius V. So how would you answer that charge, that, that you're being stubborn? I've already asked you many times, actually. First of all, with regard to someone coming from the CMRI, okay. As I mentioned, they, they appeal to the Took bishops for the line of their holy orders there. And I mentioned the, um, the, 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 violation of Catholic tradition, a very, very serious matter, in a manner that is not only considered to be uh, a sin, but is a matter that is committed, considered to be a crime, a crime against the faith, a crime against the church. But that it didn't even raise the question of the validity. Right? There's, there's such a, a, a grave, grave question, a serious doubt hovering over all of um, Archbishop Took's consecrations, that um, it can't be dispelled. I mean, at least it hasn't been, certainly hasn't been so far. Despite the efforts of the, the advocates of, other, of Archbishop Took to try to find some arguments to make that doubt go away, they haven't. They, in fact, their arguments have been so weak and so, um, well, actually, the word pathetically weak, in fact, that they're reaching for straws that actually rather argue against the validity of his consecrations rather than for them. Um, that, um, you know, even on the basis of the doubtfulness of the consecrations of their bishops and ordinations of their priests, we'd have to say that we just can't, can't go along with this. You know? okay. And um, so there's the other issue, too. Now, those, there are those who say, well, that's too rigid. And look, you're looking back uh, to a consecrations that happened so many years ago that, I mean, after all, doesn't that kind of wear off after a while? Or doesn't that problem sort of fade into the past? And the answer is no. It never does fade into the past in the sense that the church is timeless. And she says, if there is a problem, then the problem has to be reconciled. It doesn't just sort of fizzle out. I mean, at what point does a non-Catholic institution just sort of, uh, by the process of osmosis or whatever, you know, turn into something Catholic? 
it has there has to be some way to remove the obstacles. You know, it doesn't just happen by accident. Um, uh, th there are definite things that have to be done. You use the word reconcile. If there is some way, uh, if for whatever serious reason there is an institution that is not Catholic, then it would have to take the necessary practical steps to reconcile with the Catholic Church <clears throat> or to become part of the Catholic Church. It's not as though the problems of the last generation are left behind and all of a sudden now, look, suddenly we're Catholic. <laughs> Because, look, we read the Catechism, now we believe the Catechism. And you say, well, wait a minute now, your founder claimed he was Pope Hadrian VII and had a, lot of, a few other um, issues, shall we say, <laughs> which we won't go into here. And they say, oh yeah, well that was that was then, this is now. You know? So now we're Catholic, right? No, you're not Catholic now. I mean, their founder went off to be consecrated a bishop by an old Catholic schismatic uh, um, Brown in, in a hotel room in Sandusky, Ohio. That's where he got his start. And the story was that Brown had left the Catholic Church to get himself ordained and consecrated as a schismatic. And then in the hotel room, Daniel Q. Brown read what originally we were told was the abjuration of faith. The abjuration of faith? <laughs> it's actually the abjuration of error. If you abjure your faith, it's mean you're, you're giving up your faith. But originally, they were told that this is what he did. He read an abjuration of faith. And then he proceeded to ordain and consecrate the layman Shukhart. So this is the kind of background we're, we're, we're dealing with there. That doesn't just fade away from one generation to the next. Now, there are certain things that have to be done in order to make things right. Um... The same with the Novus Ordo. I mean, one might argue the same way and say, oh, well, the Novus Ordo came back in the 1960s after all. I mean, let's give everybody a break and just say, well, let's press reset, start all over again, and we'll just pretend that everything's fine and hope it all turns out well. I'm sorry, but it it's almost seems to me that there are times when the Society of St. Pius X seems to adopt that approach. And uh, we, we can't do that. As traditional Catholics, we again, if we're going to be honestly traditional Catholics, we have to hold a Catholic tradition. And Catholic tradition says that this is wrong. It doesn't stop being wrong. Because Catholic tradition doesn't uh, continually change as Francis says it does. Sure. It is something fixed. Uh, there are those who even say that we accuse others of cooties, you know, having cooties because of where they, you know, where they came from in the past. Yeah. But the fact is, I mean, there, there are lineages of bishops that are schismatic lineages of bishops. And uh, the Catholic Church does not accept them. Um, really, the Orthodox churches just sort of, sort of somehow slide into, back into Catholicism, you know, down the road. Lutheranism sort of slide into Catholicism. That's what the modernists are doing. That's exactly what they're doing. And that's what we cannot do. Because Catholic tradition says, that's not right. I said I'd answer that question before, Tom. What I meant, what I meant by that is this. Look, I've already said, you know, you look across the spectrum, and I acknowledge that these different traditional Catholic groups, well, would be traditional Catholic groups of all species, from the Sainte Vicantis, the dogmatic Sainte Vicantis, all the way over to the Institute of Christ the King and uh, Fraternity of St. Peter and so on. 
Um, you know, you talk to their members and they, they would have the same faith. They would all argue, we all believe the Roman Catechism, the Catechism of the Council of Trent. We all believe that. And uh, they would be right. With, with few exceptions, they would be quite honest about that. And um, one would argue, well, there's a unity of faith there. <clears throat> and they're right about that. But then they would say, well, we all want the same worship, too. We all want the traditional Roman rite of Mass and the sacraments. Everyone? Yes. Even the Institute of Christ the King and even the Fraternity of St. Peter and so on, even St. Pius X, SSPX, who are all claiming to use the John the 23rd, 1962 changes, okay? <clears throat> they would all say, well, we, I'm sure, if you caught them in an unguarded moment, but we really would rather not use those changes of 62. We really wanted the you know, traditional mass before any of the changes came in of uh, Vatican II, you know, and, and leading the, the, the run-up to Vatican II. In other words, before the modernists got their hands on the liturgy. Um, so, you know, everybody is united in that wish to have the, the traditional Roman rite of mass and sacraments. And in the government of the church, because that's the third mark of unity, the, the rule or government that we follow, uh, they would all ultimately agree the same. I mean, the dogmatic state of Acantus and even the Institute of Christ the King and so on, they would say, look, Catholic tradition is the ultimate authority because that's the work of the Holy Ghost. They would say that, uh, let's say, the Fraternity of St. Peter, the Society of St. Pius X, would say, and the fraternity, uh, I'm sorry, the Institute of Christ the King would say that you're the proximate rule of faith, which is the voice of the Holy See, a reigning pontiff, okay? Now, the Sadiabicontists would say, well, we don't have that. The Institute of Christ the King and the fraternity of St. Peter would say, we do have that. The Society of St. Pius X would say, we do have it, but we don't have to listen to it, <laughs> you know? Um, so they would disagree on the status of, let's say, Francis, okay? But they would all agree on one thing, that Catholic tradition has the authority, you know, over all popes and over all, the entire papacy. They'd have to agree to that, okay? It has to do with the constitution of the church itself. So the, the problem really comes down to, and you're pointing it out, perhaps without you know, being aware of it, that while the groups would all claim to be following Catholic tradition, they're not. And this is the problem. The CMRI with the Novus Ordo, they're not following Catholic tradition. And um, Francis even had to falsify Catholic tradition by saying that Catholic tradition is change. That sums it all up. It's just constant change. That's the voice of modernism right there. So, um, we realize that what they're doing there is not being faithful to Catholic tradition. And so we, wanting and intending to be faithful to Catholic tradition, cannot go along with them in, the, in their violations of Catholic tradition and making it essentially a mockery of it. Doing things the Church has always condemned as wrong. We cannot, we cannot join them in that. So if that's considered rigid, I'm sorry, there were, I'm no doubt, you know, there are many, many in the world today who claim that our Lord himself was very rigid and unyielding. And um, they say what, um, 
They say with those who said, we will not have this man to rule over us. There's even a parable about that. You know, when our Lord, our Lord talked about the, the man who went to receive the crown as ruler, and he committed his goods, right? The, um, to, uh, to certain hands, okay? And there was one who traded his things and actually gained an increase, okay? Didn't just trade them, invested them, worked with them, okay? Another, you know, did the same thing with a lesser amount, and the one who received one single coin, whether it was a denarius, a na, or a talent, whatever you wish to call it, um, uh, said, here, I buried it. I buried it. I did nothing with it. And uh, again, the voice of our Lord, the one who our Lord is speaking of in the parable, is representing himself, said, well, why would you do that? He said, you, well, I did this because you're a severe man and you take what you don't, doesn't, doesn't belong to you. And um, you're, you're just accusing him, the, the master, the Lord, of being too rigid and too stiff, unyielding, right? That's why the one did not use the talent. That's why he buried it, right? And we know what the, our Lord said something interesting in the parable there. He said to him, well, if you thought, if you thought that's how I am, then why didn't you give, at least give the money to your usurers? Because if you thought that that's the kind of man I was, then why didn't you go to the usurers, which would have been forbidden, for a decent man, which is why the others did not go to the usurers. They they developed, and you might call it capitalism if you want, <clears throat> but they actually, with the introduction of ingenuity and effort, they made their master's wealth grow. This man, who is accusing the master of being a bad individual who took what he didn't even deserve, was told, well, then you could have gone to the user if you thought that's the kind of man I am. He didn't do that, though. Which, again, you know, showed how dishonest he was. So, um, as I say, this, this uh, accusation of being too rigid, when it comes to matters of what is true and false, what is being matter right and wrong, being faithful to God, yes, that, that raises the, uh, the objection from people who are, are not really that concerned about being all that faithful, <clears throat> someone being too unyielding. But uh, that also raises the question of the parable of the unjust steward who told his master's debtors to sit down and cut their bill in half, right? He was very accommodating, wasn't he? <laughs> Yeah, but we're not we're not going to be that way. Okay. Well, Father, if we could uh, change gears, I have a question here from a viewer concerning um, Romans eleven twenty six. So if I could just read that really quickly here, uh, it's from Saint Paul's letter to the Romans, and uh, verse twenty six says, "And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Sion he that shall deliver and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob." So as viewer asks concerning that verse, Father, uh, it mentions the Jews getting a grace and final call, and St. Paul says that all Israel will be saved. 
But does all Israel mean that all the saved and does all Israel mean all Israel saved in the world's history? All the saved in the world's history. The final call for the Jews comes after the fullness of the Gentiles have come into the church. Does that mean when a great number of Jews are converted at their second call, the world will very shortly come to an end and time will be no more? Well, Tom, this uh, can be understood also in terms of the last book of the Bible, the book of the Apocalypse. St. Paul talks about the conversion of Jews, right? Toward the end of the world, he speaks of that, right? And if you turn to chapter 7 of the book of the Apocalypse, sometimes referred to as the book of Revelation. But I mean, all the books of the Bible are books of Revelation, divine revelation. But if you turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of the Apocalypse, chapter 7, there it talks about um, the striking of the earth, but the angels are told not to strike the earth and the sea and the trees until the... Uh, faithful are marked with the sign of the Son of Man, okay? They're marked. This indicates baptism. And we read in that, in that chapter there about the conversion of the Jews. Uh, of the different tribes of the Jews, we see 12,000 signed. Total 144,000 signed. And uh, the only tribe that is missing is the tribe of Dan which seems to have disappeared to history. Although there are those who theorize, you know, where the real tribe of Dan is right now. Uh, but all the other tribes of Israel are mentioned there. And so, um, now, when we're talking about the, the tribes of Israel, we're really speaking of the descendants of Abraham, okay? Okay. Uh, the, the book of the Apocalypse also tells us about those who claim they are Jews and are not, simply meaning they are not really of the descendants of Abraham. Um, there's a book written uh, called The Thirteenth Tribe, um, and um, it talks about the, the conversion of the Khazars in the steppes of Russia in the ninth century, eighth century, um, because they, they converted to Judaism, actually, rather than to Christianity or to Islam, who were both vying to have influence over them, and converted primarily because of the idea of the promise that they would basically have dominance over the earth. And um, we have this entire very large sect of Jews who are descended from them. They're not, they're not descendants of Abraham. And um, when, we, when we read the uh, sacred scriptures, when they refer, refer to the Israelites, the Hebrews, they're, they're referring to them as actual descendants of Abraham. And so, you know, we have to realize that uh, the book of the Apocalypse also tells us that there are many in the world who claim to be Jews, but they are not descendants of Abraham. In fact, the book of the Apocalypse even talks about some of being not of this synagogue, really, of, of Abraham, as it were, uh, descendants of Abraham, but rather of the synagogue of, uh, of Satan, is how they're referred. So I, I think it's very important to uh, understand you know, what St. Paul says to the Romans here in chapter 11 in the context of other places in sacred scripture, notably in the book of the Apocalypse about the conversion of the Jews. 
and they, they list um, uh, this very large conversion. And you notice something else, too, by the way, that the book of the Apocalypse talks about um, two figures who will be, uh, let's say, leaders in the resistance to the Antichrist. And again, they will be, of the Hebrew people, they will be descendants. Elias and Henoch will return, and uh, they will be uh, leading the, the uh, resistance to the Antichrist. Um, the implication of all this, I believe, if one studies the Father's writings and so on, and commentators, that um, actually the conversion of the Jews uh, will uh, be a deciding factor in resistance to the Antichrist taking complete dominion over the entire world. So um, it will be symbolic also of the great victory of our Lord Jesus Christ, that the sign they will be marked with will evidently be the sign of the cross of our Lord as we are baptized, we are anointed with that sign. And um, <clears throat> instead of 12 apostles, one of whom betrays our Lord, there will be 12,000 signed of each of the tribes of Israel. And what could be more emblematic of a victory of our Lord and set up the final defeat of the Antichrist than that conversion? So uh, I don't know if that actually answers our writer's question. but Sounds good. <laughs> well, uh, something, just something to think about mm -hmm. beyond... Uh, it doesn't mean that ever, all of the... that all of the children of Abraham who are alive, all of the offspring of Abraham mm -hmm. die and life will be converted and will live, <clears throat> there's a certain number given, a total of 144,000, uh, whether that can be taken literally, literal 12,000 each of each of those 12 tribes or not, I don't know. Okay. And I don't know that any of the commentators are willing to venture a statement at that. The fact is it speaks of, of, a, of a great conversion. And, and oddly enough, coming, that conversion coming at the, on the heels of a great apostasy of a great abandonment of the faith. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, um, you know, God turned from the people of Israel to the Gentiles in the time of St. Paul. And now St. Paul is, in a sense, prophesying that the Gentiles, now the offspring of the Gentiles, will abandon the faith in Christ, and our Lord, by grace, will call the Israelites now to take their places, as it were. And is it true that the end of time, the end of the world, will occur soon after this conversion of the Jews? Yes, but soon, in biblical terms, is very different from soon in our colloquial terms. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, uh, well then, another email. Father is from a viewer who says, uh, they ask, is it okay for someone who is battling depression to go to Holy Communion? say, I, I have been battling depression for a few years now, and sometimes it really weighs down on me. I feel as though I am in despair and even wish sometimes that God would let me die. At these times, I feel like going to communion will help, as I will get graces to help fight these battles. But at the same time, I feel as though being in this state of despair is a mortal sin, and going to Holy Communion would be a sacrilege. Any help from Father would be greatly appreciated. If you are wanting to receive our Lord in Holy Communion because you believe the graces would help you, you're not in despair. 
you may be discouraged and you may be very depressed, maybe clinically depressed. But the fact is, if you want to receive our Lord in Holy Communion, you're not in despair, right? Uh, especially if you believe it will help you. Then uh, despair is one of these sin, sins that uh, is called sin against the Holy Ghost. There are six of them enumerated by the Church. One of them is presumption. Another is despair. Despair is rejecting the mercy of God. Um, actually turning away from it and saying, no, for me it is impossible. I cannot have, there is no mercy possible for me. I'm doomed, right? So that one will not even ask God for mercy or forgiveness or help. Uh, and this person, by the very fact of what he or she says there, says very clearly, this is, you know, I, I want to receive our Lord of Holy Communion. As though this person recognizes that there, there I will find relief in Christ. He can help me. He can help me. And there, the person is absolutely right about that. He can help. And so no amount of depression should keep one away from receiving our Lord in Holy Communion, especially if they have the desire to receive our Lord and the confidence that he can help them. Because by definition that they're not in despair and they need to receive him precisely to make sure they don't they don't slide or slip into despair or fall into despair. Depression is a terrible, terrible thing. It's a horrible nightmare. And uh, people, uh, in fact, one might almost call it, um, can think of it as one of the worst agonies a person can go through. Um, you know, people who lose hope and that's very what despair is. It's losing hope. Uh, people can't live without hope. They could sooner live without the sun. They could live without air and water and food but than they can without hope because we're spiritual beings as well as physical beings. And uh, we are created by God to, to need purpose. And purpose uh, is a really a matter of, of hope. If one loses all sense of purpose and loses all sense of hope, then the person is like the walking dead. They feel like that. And it's, it's an agony they go through. So um, it's a very, very heavy cross. If someone can't accept that as a cross, because one can still have faith. One can still have faith and still experience that depression. And that faith can carry them through. And they can actually offer that depression as a cross. In fact, one might even consider it to be a unique, a unique cross, a union with Christ himself. Because, um, I mean, there are illnesses we suffer that afflict the body, cause pain and suffering that way. But depression is such an anguish of, of soul that those who carry that cross can be united with our Lord in, in his anguish, in his interior anguish, which is a thousand times worse than what he suffered physically, the anguish that he suffered. I mean, even before our Lord entered the Garden of Eden, what did he, I'm sorry, even before our Lord entered the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to his apostles, he remarked, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. My soul is sorrowful even unto death. What did that tell us? 
that the, even just the anguish that our Lord experienced there, even before the agony, agony in the garden began, was so terrible, it, could, it would kill a man. It could kill a man, physically kill him. And that our Lord was actually sustaining his life for the sake of suffering for us. He just kept himself alive to fulfill the will of the Father, to hang on the cross until finally, finally he had fulfilled the Father's will. But he could say, it is consummated, right? It is completed. And uh, one who suffers depression can unite himself with that anguish of our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane in a, in a unique way and can draw enormous graces from him. It takes a, it takes a very deep faith. Though. It takes a lot of love. It takes an enormous amount of love for God to be able to do that. It takes an enormous amount of love for our Lord to be willing to carry that that part of the cross with him, you know. But uh, but there are those who are uh, are asked by our Lord to to do that for him now, and and someone who's in a state of depression might well ask himself, uh, you know, what can I can I do something of service to God with this? rather than just allow it to crush me. And he might say, well, if this is what God wants of me now, if this is the service that God wants of me, if this is what our Lord is asking me to do for him now, I will do that. Even if I just have to take it minute by minute, <clears throat> hour by hour, day by day. This doesn't forbid them from seeking relief, of course, you know. <clears throat> um... They can seek, certainly seek relief, but as long as that relief is not there, just as it wasn't, I mean, for our Lord himself, um, they can do that. They can say, if, our, if this is what Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, is asking me to do for him now, then I will, I will carry this cross and uh, make the best of it, as hard as it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, and someone who has that spirit, they will, no matter what the depression may be, how how horrible the storm may rage, they will never be crushed by it. Father, I heard a priest once say that he believed our Lord suffered physically on the cross for all of those who would suffer some sort of physical ailment, but our Lord also suffered mentally and spiritually in the garden for those who would suffer any kind of uh, mental mm -hmm. or, or spiritual agony. And so, as you mentioned, our Lord's suffering and the agony in the garden could be a very great patron. Well, it isn't only the agony in the garden, Tom. I mean, our Lord's words on the cross, uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I mean, the, the initial words of Psalm 21 attributed to King David a thousand years before the crucifixion. Our Lord intones that psalm there as he's about to die on the cross. And this statement, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Indicates what was happening. It's a cry of the heart. It's a cry of the spirit of our Lord, his soul. What he's experiencing there. There you have the great anguish of the soul of Christ crying out too. Uh, that goes much deeper than the physical sufferings. Father, as horrible as they were. What are some more practical things that one can do to pull himself from this, uh, from these feelings of depression or, or bordering on despair, we, we received another email, uh, very, very similar 
similar topic um, from a viewer who's saying who has said that uh, there are no mass or sacraments around them. Uh, they are unable to travel at this point, and they um, they're just feeling extremely discouraged and, and depressed and on the verge of despair. So, what what would you recommend for someone like this? I believe in uh, a sermon of yours some time ago, Father, and speaking of, of something similar to this, you noted how depression, one suffering depression, they are so uh, focused on themselves. Depression is all about the individual, and perhaps a remedy for that could be doing acts of charity for other people. Um, would you still recommend something like that? Well, by all means, if they can. Okay. I mean, there are those who have suffered such terrible depression that they, they tell me it's almost like a paralysis. <clears throat> and um, it's, it's, a, it's an awful thing. They would find it perhaps inconceivable to do that. But I would encourage them still to try to get out and to see others in need and to try to be of service to them and help them. Um, it, it is certainly a matter of feeding depression. It feeds upon itself, really, that someone uh, in depression is focusing on the depression. <clears throat> and that just uh, stirs up this kind of whirlwind. And it's very difficult to escape from that vicious circle. You know. But the more they can, the more they can be called upon to help others, the more demands are, that are made on them to be of help to others. It is, it is a, a little bit of, of light that shines in, as it were, into their darkness. And it distracts them, can distract them even momentarily, you know, because of the need of another who, um, who calls upon them and their help, you know. And also the fact that they're willing to do that would draw grace from God too. To, uh, you know, practice the seven corporal and spiritual works of mercy for others <clears throat> takes one's attention away from oneself and draws it to another and another one's need. And, uh, God will bless them for that, for making that effort too. So, um, the worst thing to do for, well, what I've been told, I, I'm not an expert on depression, okay? Although there are people who will say, well, you don't know, you don't know what it's like, you don't know what it's like. Well, maybe, maybe some of us do. Maybe sometimes we do know what it's like. Maybe not to the extent that they do, but maybe we do. We do understand something of this, you know, even from personal experience. They can't wave the finger at others and say, you don't understand what this is like. <coughs> they can't be sure that it's not so. But, um, the fact is that, um, our Lord wants us to focus on Him. We have to see Him through all of this. Our Lord in faith. But He wants us also to, to see what we can do for the, for the blessing and care of others as well. Uh, even during our Lord's agony uh, and His passion, He was thinking of others. I mean, He, he thought of Veronica and left her the imprint of His face on the veil. The good thief, right? This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. Mother, behold thy son, to providing for her. All of these things our Lord was doing in the, in the midst of this agony that he was enduring here. And I think the example that he set was set uh, for us to follow clearly. As St. Paul says, leaving you an example, right? Um, if I may, Tom, we're probably going to be ending the show in a few minutes here. 
I, I, I wouldn't, I'd like to return to something you said earlier, though, and you mentioned the poor lady who's out, has nowhere to go, and I would just suggest that she try to sanctify herself as well as she can under the circumstances, be in contact with traditional priests, contacting the seminary, be in contact with us here through what Catholics believe. I mean, it, it, maybe it's even possible for her to travel here once a year. I don't know where she is, you know. Or if any of our priests happen to be in the area, I know if it were possible to be in contact with her. Um, so we, we just have to uh, continue the effort here, okay? Uh, I don't know if it's possible for her to be even to move to the Cincinnati area, but you know, be delighted to have her as a member of the parish here, a member of the church and school here. Um, but I would just tell her, uh, tell her that even though she may feel herself very far away, um, the fact that she's in contact with us now, I mean, it, it can lead to other, you know, good things and improvement in that situation. Um, but, you know, you mentioned earlier the fellow who wrote in about a friend of his, I think it was a fellow who wrote about a friend of his who was refused communion in a St. Pius V chapel. And then, because he was going to the CMRI, and he wound up then going back to the conservative Noah's Ordo. And I would just ask this, I, I wasn't going to bring this up, but I would ask the man who wrote that email to us, what does that tell him about the thinking of his friend? That going to the CMRI, being refused communion at a St. Pius V chapel, he winds up going back to the Novus Ordo even the conservative Novus Ordo. And does that not illustrate the very fact that we're saying their thinking is not in the right place? If because of that, he would say, well, I'm just going to go back to the conservative Novus Ordo. He's obviously not a traditional Catholic, not at heart, not at heart anyway. The decisions he's making are not based upon traditional Catholicism. I'm referring to the friend now. And... Um, you know, there are those who would say uh, that, you know, you should just, you know, allow wiggle room and leeway, and we do. We actually, I know I do, well, I try to, <laughs> and I know the other priests have too, and are very understanding where they can be. But there are certain things that we can't negotiate with. Uh, we can't negotiate with marriage. We can't negotiate with marriage annulments. You know, we can't negotiate with... That, again, we can't negotiate things in such a way that is contrary to Catholic tradition. If that were the case, we'd have to just give up calling ourselves traditional Catholics. We couldn't do it honestly. There are many who call themselves traditional Catholics who are not really following Catholic tradition. And that is part of the problem. But this is actually for the good of the souls involved. I mean... What good would it have done to give Holy Communion to that gentleman from the CMRI and just have him go back to the CMRI again and think, oh, well, it's all the same. No difference. Doesn't matter. At least this way, you know, you get the point across to people and you make them understand it does matter. It is important. There's a reason why we're not going to the Novus Ordo. It's not traditional. So why would we turn around now and start, and start uh, frittering away Catholic tradition? In other ways, it doesn't make sense. We'd be inconsistent, and that would be the worst possible thing we could do for the sake of the souls involved. For the sake of all the souls involved, we have to insist that 
Catholic tradition is the only right and legitimate way for Catholics to stand now. They have to stand on the basis of Catholic tradition. Not some of it, all of it. If they're going to stand on the basis of Catholic tradition, they have to take the, the, uh, the things that require sacrifice also, as well as the things that help serve our purpose and, and uh, you know, are favorable to us. So um, there are so many ways that we could adjust our tradition if we wanted to. <clears throat> we have the pre-1950 Holy Week right here. We have the reading of the prophecies, the 12 prophecies at, uh, on Holy Saturday, the Easter Vigil ceremonies. By that time, the priest is very weary. By that time, his joints are aching. His throat is raw, right? His eyes are red <laughs> from the long ceremonies that he's been praying and reading and so on, all during the Passion Tide and then, you know, uh, Holy Week and the Triduum. And um, why don't we just say, well, look, uh, 12 readings, eh, let's just... Let's just do six this time, okay? It'd be so much easier, right? And uh, we could make those adjustments, but we wouldn't be traditional Catholics if we did that. We wouldn't be honest about it if we started making adjustments uh, in what we practice because of that. That wouldn't be that wouldn't be being faithful to Catholic tradition. So uh, it is actually not only it is actually infidelity for our Lord Jesus Christ to our Lord Jesus Christ that we must hold the line when it comes to what is really Catholic tradition, what is not. But it is also for the benefit of the souls involved, ultimately, too. Even those who don't see that and don't understand it right now, someone has to be willing to do that and to say, well, there are certain things that are non-negotiable. And uh, if we're going to claim to be traditional Catholics, we have to, we have to follow Catholic tradition. And we can't just follow it when it suits us huh. and when it makes people happy. Any other words of wisdom before we close the program? Father? Just pray. Just pray. Pray the rosary. Pray the rosary. And when I say, I pray it, I say, I don't mean to say it. I mean, pray the rosary. Meditate on the mysteries. When we, when we say the prayers of the rosary, we are supposed to be actually meditating. What's, what should be going through our minds is, is, it, is in a sense, reliving with our Lord and with our Lady, reliving these mysteries. So that we're not just thinking about these things that happened long, long ago, far, far away. We're supposed to be, in our own mind, reliving these mysteries that we, that we announce uh, in praying the rosary. Then, then we can honestly say we're praying the rosary. So I'd been asked people to... Uh, Give Our Lady that that she has said uh, is needed for us. She's asked for us, for us, her children, to give her that. Because God has given her to us. And it is she who has asked this for our own good. So uh, let's, let's give that to ultimately to God in thanksgiving for having given her to us, even from the cross. Definitely. Father, thanks for being here tonight. Well, you're welcome, Tom, certainly. Thank you. Yep. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima. 
to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and finally to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.